Hello, and welcome once again to Let's Talk About Public Code, a show where we invite members of our community who are actively using public code in their code bases. My name is Alba Roza, and I'm one of the code base stewards of the Foundation for Public Code. My co-host, Jan Ainali, couldn't make it today, so I'm joined by Boris van Hoytema, Chief Executive of the Foundation for Public Code. So he certainly knows a little bit about public code. <laughs> Hello, Boris, welcome. Hello, Alba. Thanks for having me. Uh, uh, it's great to be here. Yeah. Well, nice to have you too in this episode in which uh, we're going to be talking to a former civil servant in the French ecosystem. Yeah. Um, I am very excited for today. Uh, we're joined by uh, Marco Quiroga, who has worked for several years in the Direction Interministerielle du Numérique, um, pardon my French, and has been uh, behind the scenes of the Open Fisca codebase, which I'm very excited about. Yeah, shall we bring him on? Please. <laughs> hey, Marco, welcome. Hey, hello, Alba. Hello, Boris. And uh, well, hello, listeners of the Foundation for Public Codes podcast. Uh, I'm really, really happy to be here today. And uh, I just wanted to say that I'm very admirative of all the work uh, you're doing in the Foundation for Public Code and all the public coders of the world. <laughs> Thank you. Well, nice to have you here. Yeah, so, Malko, maybe first some... Uh... Some background. How did the Chilean end up working for the French government? <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I think I couldn't think of a better question to start with because, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a story. But I would like to start with the why before the how. So the thing is, I started coding not as a career, but as a student job working on Starbucks or stuff like that. Um, I actually did software. And so at some point, I landed in, uh, in Paris by accident as well. Uh, I followed someone, so kind of a love story. And the thing is, like, uh, working in code and in Paris, at some point, I said to myself, I mean, I would like to do something that has some positive social impact or working for the general interests. But I, looking around, uh, all the, the tech ecosystem seemed to me very far from that. So uh, whatever you had uh, was uh, more like uh, big companies, uh, consulting companies, or or startups that were not necessarily driven by improving uh, the general interest, but more, let's say, to increase uh, investors' wallets. So the thing is, like, I had this uh, big existential crisis at some point, and I didn't know what to do. So now, how? How did I actually end up working for the French government? So I had this urgent need to work for the general interest, and, and that's how I discovered uh, DINUM, which is uh, the Digital Government Task Force of the French Prime Minister. And I said, like, this is my way out. I need to work there. I was determined to work there. But I was convinced that I couldn't do it just with my coding skills, the, the only ones that I had at, at the time. So. I thought that in order to work there, I had to develop some policy officer skills. So there is this French school of policy officers, which is called Sciences Po, that I prepared two years. So basically to become a policy officer in order to work for the general interest. And then something really, really incredible happened. So I was in a, one night in a fundraiser, and a fundraiser dinner. And at some point, there is a guy that takes the floor and Guess what? He was working for Dinum. And here's the thing. He started talking about the missions. And, and basically what he says is that you can work as a coder for the general interest. And they were actually doing it. And so I was like, I have to have a coffee with this guy. I have to work with them. And so basically, well, this guy's name is Matti Schneider. So you're going to hear probably his name again during this podcast. And I literally harassed him. So I invited him to his table and I said, I won't leave until you, you accept an invitation for a coffee. And so, <laughs> <laughs> and this is real. I mean, you can, you can fact check it. Uh, and that's the rest of the rest is history, basically. So we went for coffee and, 
And at some point, a couple of months later, I started working for Dinum. Well, of course, this is not the first time the foundation talks to you, Mauko. And I remember in one of our talks before that you mentioned that, you know, you have a background in industrial engineering, business, law, and political science. And besides that, what you've just said, that you're also a self-taught software engineer and innovation consultant, right? So, yeah, it seems like a little bit exhausting to become a civil servant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's kind of a lot of hard just for one single person, right? Uh, and, and you know what? I mean, if you look at it like at first glance, it, it could like look incoherent or, or even an anecdote path. And, and well, I, in a way it is, <laughs> I think. But I mean, I try to call myself uh, a generalist which is um, yeah. the opposite of a, craft, a craftsman. So we look at that software craftsmanship and um, yeah. I define myself as the opposite, like a generalist. So what that means is that instead of being driven by any specific skill sets, um, I'm actually driven by topics of interest. So if something catches my attention, I try to learn whatever skill is needed to actually do something about that. Mm-hmm. It is, it is what a psychiatrist would call the obsessive compulsive disorder, maybe. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so the, the thing is, like, if you look at the um, software software development or innovation consultancy or, or political science, I mean, uh, as I said before, there is this common theme in all these things, which is this idea and this, this need of having a positive social impact and, and working for the general interest. And so... That being said, mm-hmm. I can't think of a better way to do that than working at least once in your life uh, for government. So then becoming a civil servant kind of comes quite naturally. Yeah, so you're quite the digital renaissance man. What is it that you actually do? do? Like, what is your job? Yeah, so I had different roles uh, during Genome. So... Um, as I said, Genome is uh, it's an agency, so it's Church of Digital Affairs and Digital Infrastructure. And I, I just wanted to say that there are a lot of missions in Genome, right? So I work two missions, which the first one is beta.gov.fr, which is a kind of an, uh, an entrepreneurship program uh, in order to help civil servants themselves deliver digital public services instead of actually asking a consulting firm to do them. Uh, and the second one is it's a lab, which is kind of the task force in charge of uh, in charge of open data and open government and data driven public policies. So those are the the two task forces I worked for. So what did I do uh, as a role? So I had three roles. The first one was a software developer. So what did I do as a software developer? For example, I uh, worked in the implementation of the French uh, open uh, transport open data portal. It's kind of a a European Union directive. Also, I was uh, quite recently, and I guess the, the, the reason I'm, I've been invited here today, the product manager of OpenFisca, which uh, I hope um, I'm going to talk to you about more later. And that is one of the, uh, it's a candidate for the Foundations of Public School Stewardship Program. And finally, by the end of my mission, um, I assume a role of what I call a policy engagement officer. Um, which is kind of, it's a more, it's, it's a fancy way of describing a bit of politics, community animation, and product portfolio management. Yeah, now that you mentioned OpenFisca, uh, I guess now we have to ask you about OpenFisca, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, during your time at this Direction Interministerial du Numérique, Dinum, you worked there in OpenFisca. So, what can you tell us about it? What's OpenFisca? Yeah, so the short story about OpenFisc is that OpenFisc is an open source uh, platform to write rules as code. So the question is, like, mm-hmm. what is this rules as code thing? So this is kind of a, a bit of explanation in order just to understand what OpenFisc is. So let's say rules as code, this concept of rules as code. So what are rules? So each government to function, right, has to produce some public policy. And the public policy is just kind of an intent of things that we want to do, right? So in order to actually apply policy, we need to concretize it in a way. And so there are some people in government that call the policy makers that they create uh, legislation and regulations. That is kind of the 
the, the, the incarnation, the practical incarnation policy and something that we can apply. And so legislation and regulations, what we call rules in general. So rules as code is a way of uh, describing legislation and regulations in code. In the case of Belgisca, in Python. So I was reading the standard. I was reading the standard and in the introduction, there's this really uh, interesting part when you talk about how increasingly legal code becomes uh, software code. And so OpenDisk is basically sort of a framework to do that. Mm -hmm. If I could just add, I mean, like give example, give some examples of what uh, we can use OpenDisk for. It could be interesting just theoretically or intellectually to just say, okay, so let's take the legislation and the, the regulations written into code. So, but what for? So there are current uses of OpenFISCA that are the most interesting to share, I think, with you. The first one is that when you do that, for example, you can use some data to evaluate how new policy is going to impact people, like redistributive impacts, how much, for example, new tax is going to cost uh, to government, etc. Also, you can, for example, create simulators. So people want to know if they are eligible or not to several different uh, social benefits. And so instead of having, having to go to each kind of public agency's website in order to know each specific so, um, social benefit, it could be 30, 50, or 100, you can just have one simulator that can give you with the same piece of information, the eligibility to all of them. And so behind that, you have OpenFISCA, who has all the coded legislation that can do that calculation calculation for you. So that's what it's done today with OpenFISCA. What could be done in the near future is that you can actually do an end-to-end -end cycle of a new policy. So you can simulate, then you can write it when you're enacting it. So you write it, for example, in English or in French or in Dutch and in Python. And then you can use OpenDisca to deliver the services that are needed to actually give access to this new policy to, to citizens. And then you can recycle and create the cycle again. If you want to reform this same policy, you're going to use OpenDisca already with new data to know what is the best reform that you can decide. That's part of the whole cycle. So, and in the very, very, very long future, you can imagine all the things that you could do. Uh, this is kind of a leap of faith here, but you could automatically collect taxes. You could automatically grant benefits. You could have a official, an official API for a company's regulatory compliance, and you could have a, basically an official authoritative framework uh, for public code. Yeah, that sounds pretty cool. We are actually in the Netherlands also working with other projects, for instance, that are very similar in a sense to what you're saying. So yeah, we 100% believe in projects like that. Yeah, it's very, very interesting. And, and this is definitely like super close to, to our heart. I think, yeah. I think it's like for us, learning about OpenFISCA was really such a strong proof of concept in a way for what we were doing. Because we were telling this story of like how it's important that policy and code are done together. And everyone was say, was looking at us as if we were crazy. And then when we found OpenFISCA, we were like, yeah, but look, it is real and it is already happening. And since that happened, we've seen so much other projects also sort of like make that step and get into that place. But OpenFISCA there is really ahead of the curve. But apart from the sort of like content of what OpenFISCA is, there's another part of OpenFISCA that we find really inspiring and that that is quite amazing to us. And that is that there's already quite a bit of like reuse and a bit of a community around this project. And uh, like, as I understand it, like there's some use of this in Canada and in New Zealand, even and in Africa. Like, how did that happen? Like, is that because of French historical factors, Canada and in countries in Africa? Or are there other reasons? Like, how did it happen? <laughs> that, that was a very, very interesting question as well, because the, the things like, well, anyways, on an open because it does have a, 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 a growing community all over the world, but still it's a, it's a small one. It's like not, it's not like a, this big uh, open source project. It's like a very niche, right? So it's, it's still in the hundreds. And 
the thing is that uh, most of the growth has been uh, inorganic. So I explain. It means that at some point, uh, there is someone that already uses OpenFISCA that goes abroad somewhere and given the right conditions and meeting the right people and, and the, the, the right needs at the good time, at the good moment, they launch another OpenFISCA. So, for example, the, uh, the African country models, we call models, right? Uh, specific uh, country OpenFISCA is a country model. And so African ones were launched all of them with the participation of uh, some or other members of the French community. So, for example, there are members of the French community that are from Tunisia. So they, they started the Tunisian model. Then, for example, during the open government partnership, there were some people from Senegal and so people with from the French community started working with people from Senegal and started that model. And so, and and, th and then starts to grow, right? So, what happens? Uh, with New Zealand is that this specific uh, French contributor that went abroad, Matthew Schneider, when he mentioned, and at some point he met some he met some people, um, especially specifically uh, Pierre Andres, and they start working in the New Zealand model. Uh, and so then Pierre Andres moves uh, back to Australia and starts the Australian model, and then back to Canada, and so they start the Canadian model with some people from Australia and Canada and well, me and others trying to, to help. So it grows like, uh, I don't know how to say that uh, in, specifically in English, say a uh, word of mouth. I mean, you need to actually be physically there in order to launch uh, a group in fiscal, which is cool, but still we don't have yet a, uh, an organic kind of uh, spontaneous growth. Mm -hmm. This sounds organic to me. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about the rest of the, let's say, international community that uh, OpenFISCA has, but I, I'm wondering, what about the local communities? What about the provinces and, and French cities? How does it work there? Yeah. Um, the adoption, I'm talking about, the communities in there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, this is a very nice question. So the, the things like, uh, you know, internationally, the people kind of sort of, reunites because um, they're working with their country models and and people are working with the country model basically they're just like different things that reunite also because they are working sometimes uh, within the the same fields of legislation so it, it kind of helps uh creating community what happens with the local models is that you're working with local legislation basically that legislation is sort of unique to that uh, city or region so this um, it, it is it is not evident to think about community that is not driven by this need to share if you know what i mean so so the the animation of this stuff there are different local governments that are adopting open fiscal but the animation is being done kind of centrally because they have no space or needs share so that's kind of uh, it's quite quite difficult thing that i think that we have to crack uh yet so i don't i don't really have an answer to that so and, and there are a couple of other challenges that we have to address for local governments in particular uh, the first one is that local governments have less uh, resources in terms of like money than than central governments and, and OpenFISC is kind of not an expert system. So you need to know how to write code and very specific codes. It's like Victorial code. So you need to know Python and have some notions of data science as well. So it is kind of not a cheap system to develop. And that's kind of, uh, it can be hard for uh, uh, local governments to afford. And even if, if, you, if you're right to find the budget to afford, you don't have the internal stuff to do it. So you usually rely on uh, external contractors that are going to invest a lot of time of public money to learn some skills in order to know how to come with the Pisca and then they're going to go. And so that knowledge is not going to stay with the local government. It's going to go away with this consultant. So it's just this kind of challenges that we need to address in order to improve the adoption of the Pisca, uh, locally. Mm -hmm. It sounds like these are really just also the day-to-day -day challenges of digital transformation in general in, in government. And uh, I feel that they're not 
like I understand that you're struggling with them, but I think that like this is our bread and butter. Like we are struggling with the exact <laughs> same things on a day-to-day -day basis, and it's totally true. And and something that I really recognized in in what you're explaining is also like you need to work with this broad. Yeah, broad range of people as they all have their place in your community and and like how you how you work with them and and how to make these things better and also due to the nature of what you're doing like this code base really isn't a generic networking component or something it is really like something that touches on policy very strongly so you must spend a lot of time with policymakers and working with people that are sort of like from that inhibiting that space like, how is it working with them? How is that different from working with tech colleagues? And and what are the kinds of skills that one needs? And what are the kinds of things that you would, might also give us as advice for like how to work with uh, policymakers? Yeah, I, I did spend some time working with policymakers. I can just like relate to my experience. I wouldn't kind of please, dare please. just give you advice on that. But um, I think that the first thing is like in, when we talk about Policymakers, I think that we can talk about a broad of like very like not concrete uh, group of people. So, um, if I talk about policymakers, I usually I usually talk about kind of three different kind of roles, right? So, and they all have their own responsibilities in the the policymaking. So, the first ones are parliamentarians, right? So, it's independent of government, and the second one are government officials. So you usually don't interact with them directly, but mostly advisors. Uh, and, and, and the third one are like um, high-ranked civil servants, which are kind of, the three of them are in a way responsible or involved in policymaking. So during conception or implementation or in steering monitoring. So uh, when we talk about policymaking and policymakers, I, I think about those three kind of roles, right? Um, so the question was, what set them apart from my tech colleagues? Right? <laughs> well, I, I think I think there are fundamentally the three things that are very specific to, to this kind of uh, this kind of uh, people uh, or the, the missions that they, they, they play. Um, the first one is that they have a very very strategic like high level strategic view of an impressive number of models that you wouldn't you you could you could not go into details so they know everything but it's very high level right yeah the second one and this is something that you really need to take into account is that they manage their schedule by the minutes so if you read this famous uh a poll, uh, the DIY combinator guy, uh, a manager schedule, developer schedule. And I, I, I forgot his name. So, and he says that, like, yeah, a developer basically has a schedule where you have to have four hours uh, behind of, so in front of you to do stuff. And a manager has like 30 minutes or 15 minutes. Well, policymakers don't have 15 minutes, they have like one, two minutes. So, they, they really, really tight schedule. So, and that's something that you have to take into account. And the third one is that, believe it or not, they have way more constraints than you and me. And they have to deal with them like on, on an everyday basis. So they are doing trade-offs all the time. And that could be very, that, that's very specific, like actually dealing with them. So you need to take that into account. So, and, and, and the second part of the question was about like, ah, the skills, what skills could we, have to develop to work with policymakers. Yeah, well, I, I don't know if those are skills, but I, I would say the first one is, uh, but this is kind of a general one, but it's like to be trustworthy. Of course, this applies to, to every working relationship, but the thing is that if you're not reliable uh, when you're working with a policymaker, uh, the damage you're going to do to him uh, by letting him down can have like severe consequences for him, uh, for his reputation, but also for the cause that you're trying to convince him to advocate for, like with you. So you have to deliver. I mean, if you get to have the, the, the ear of a policymaker and you convince him to do something together, you have to deliver. And there's no, no option. And the second one, it's being very, and I mean, very executive. So, we talk about this very high strategic view of things. So 
it is the same. So you need to stick when you are communicating with, with, with the policymakers, you need to stick to the very strategic view of what the problem is, what are the solutions that you propose, and what are you asking him or her to do? And that has to be, of course, within her grasp. If you ask someone or a policymaker to do something they cannot do, you're basically wasting their time. And you need to forego details, so forget about details. So that's the second thing. And the third one, which is, uh, I think, maybe the, the most difficult to, to develop because it requires practice and, and, and failing a lot, <laughs> it's uh, being timely. So being timely, basically, it's having or develop, developing this sense of opportunity. So I like to say that politics have a really bad rep, but like in terms of an art or, or a job or a skill, politics are basically just the art of opportunity. So that means that you don't, you need to have a good idea, of course, but it has to be the good idea at the right time, at the right place. So that's kind of being timely. If you cannot do that, probably you won't be able to work with, with this kind of people. And I wanted to just say something that you didn't ask me, but uh, I think it's still it's important. And this applies. Uh, I think that there is there is another skill uh, that it's uh, required not just to work with uh, policymakers, but working with everybody is that empathy, right? Oh, yeah. uh, hmm. And so and so when I say empathy. Because we have this tendency of like, I have a problem, so I'm just going to go and say, hey, I want to do this. So when you say that, say I want to do this to someone, basically you're imposing them your problems. And so unless they are your directs or you have some sort of kind of very power, you have like a lot of power on deciding what they have to do. If you don't have that, I mean, they won't do what you want because they're your problem, but they're not, not theirs. So when I say empathy, it's like really take the time to understand the people, the, the people they have in, in, in front of you. Say what are their problems or what are their risks, what are their constraints and offer them solutions. Don't impose your problems to them, but in, propose them solutions to their problems. And that's when you will see wonders happen. You certainly seem to have spent so much time with them, of course. And I'm wondering, at the same time I'm listening to you, how do you see their perception towards a public code solution? So this change of paradigm in which perhaps they have to get a little bit more practical, people that are used to a whole different mindset, more strategic, and now they have to become a little bit more hands-on. How, how do you feel their perception towards a public code is? I wouldn't know how to answer that question because I don't think that public code is yet something that policymakers could think about in the sense that we think about it because it's kind of really technical. Mm -hmm. It's a technical point of view. But I, my answer would always to kind of try to relate to this in terms of strategic thinking. So, so what happens is that uh, what do you want public code for? It's a question, and yeah. the answer to that question will probably give you the insight of what could interest a policymaker. So it's a, it's a case, for example, for open data. So the things like, oh, okay, we're going to create open data. So it, it doesn't interest a lot of people. But when you say having a strong policy on open data can create new opportunities for businesses to thrive, or transparency that's going to create more trust of citizens and government, then you're catching attention, the attention of the policymaker. Uh, in terms of public code, I think, I, I, I don't know exactly what the speech is, but it has to be an answer to that question. So what we've been doing in France uh, in terms of public code, if I'm, if I can just like uh, divert a little bit. So in Europe, there's no, there's not yet a, general kind of community policy in terms of public codes. There's the, the precise directive that's supposed to be transposed this year. Yeah. But in France, you have since like 78, all software code is considered to be an administrative document. So the administration mm -hmm. is binded or obliged to open any software code request, right? 
And yeah. since 2016, this is by default. So this doesn't be open by default. Things. So all administrations are basically obliged to proactively publish all source code. It's all source code because it's like a public document. But the, the, the question is not there. The question is, so for what can we actually create society that could kind of create economic growth or transparency or uh, if we actually push for uh, public code? Yeah. And what do you think are the are the challenges now of this sort of like open per default future for public organizations? Well, that's a very, very interesting question. Let me try to reframe this to myself. So the things like, at least in France, this open by default thing exists since 2015, right? So, but if we go and look the facts, is that, yes, you have 8,000 open source public code repositories there published by a hundred, not a thousand of, uh, of public agencies, which is kind of way, way lower than that it should be given the actual legislation. So it's like, this is not happening. So open by default has been enacted, but it's not happening or it's not happening at the rate we want. So why is not happening yet? Uh, if, if I understand your question in that sense, I think that so I, I think that there is a first challenge, and which is the most important one, and it's in terms of mindset, right? Mm-hmm. So we've been accustomed to distrust citizens, right? So regulations, for example, the idea of regulation is to serve citizens, to improve the user experience, and we don't do that, right? Um, usually, we end up creating regulations to actually try to cut people. Mm-hmm. To, to set them traps, right? And so this is kind of a mistrust when government has like built walls within itself and it has to be a message change and to recognize it. We don't know actually. And, and, and all this happens because we have we are we're afraid. And, and when, when, when we talk about code, we and we are afraid that if we just go and open all this code, they're like malicious people. They're going to try to find exploits and try to, to create damage and, and, and damage government. And, and so the thing is that the first thing that we, we have to realize is that we don't know what people will do. And that's okay. And, and it's not just okay. It's an opportunity to improve the quality of or the different software that actually are used to provide public services. So there are people that like wanting to invest their time for free in order to improve this, so we have to actually trust them to do whatever they want. So that's kind of a mindset thing. The second thing for me is a, it's a cultural one, which is kind of related to the first one, is that currently most governments are really corporatist, right? So when you produce some code, it's kind of your code. It's, it's your agency's code. It's not like citizens. It's not society's code. Uh, and that has to change, you know? That has to change because... In order to kind of move the really implementing open by default, we have to actually think that if we produce something in agency, we want uh, to collaborate with other agencies. We want to collaborate with citizens. And But in order to do that, uh, managers have to give permission to their civil servants to try things, to fail, and, and to work in the open. Like not just opening, a software repository that actually start building it from scratch in the open. So that's kind of a cultural thing, that cultural sh- mind, that cultural shift that we have to operate. Uh, the third one, like quickly, it's um, and I, I we already talk, uh, we already talk about this, but I think that the all this uh, public management thing has basically cuts uh, the the ability of uh, governments to actually do stuff. So all the engineers and all. Uh, the coders and all designers and all people actually doing things like delivering things have been replaced by people just managing and making plans and then just contracting with uh, external uh, companies who actually deliver the work and that's that's a huge problem because we don't even uh, we don't we don't have in government anymore the capacity the building capacity of actually producing this public code by, by ourselves. So we've created other problems and you describe them as well in your standard. 
So that's that's the third one. And finally, I would say that yeah, I mean, in procurement, uh, public tender and procurement itself, I mean, it's, it needs to be more agile and 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 be used as an opportunity to help so the different kind of small and medium businesses to to be able to contribute to work with agencies and and, and help bring this open by default culture that it's not in government. So we need to import import this culture, and this culture is already. It's not in the big consulting firm. It's not in government. It is small uh, software shops that are already working in the open and say, these guys, these, these firms that we need to actually get to work with government in order to import that culture. Yeah, it's interesting that you're actually mentioning the, the companies now because I was thinking as a follow-up question, we were talking about what were the challenges of this open per default for public entities? But uh, I'm also wondering what are the challenges for companies? And again, companies are, as you've just said, companies are not just big corporations, but can also be small companies formed by a couple of friends, right? So uh, what, are, what do you think are the challenges that uh, these companies are facing with this new change of paradigm? What's the role in this? Uh, yeah, that, that's a very, very hard question. So I okay, I, I would just like make a, a a very small distinction between companies that would like to kind of open their their data or their code, which is one thing, mm-hmm. and companies that actually produce public interest code and data, and they're not sharing it with society. So there's two different kind of things. So so for the second one, which is like the easier one, so though so you have you have this lot of companies specific, and specifically like big platforms, Google, Facebook, etc. So there is this important societal question of government doing what it takes to actually ask these companies to share all the information that they produce that are mm-hmm. of general interest. So there is kind of one part of the equation, and that is not a problem for uh, the problem that they would face as companies is that at some point they will have to reinvent their business models. That's the long term, the, the, the big shots. But for the rest, I think that what happens is that um, we we are in this um, the prisoners uh, dilemma thing. It is that we kind of all recognize that if we at the same time all companies kind of sort of open the data, open their codes. Uh, it will create opportunities for everybody. So if we, it will allow for everybody to actually add more value to, to the customers. But the thing is, like, who goes first? So I think that the, the, <laughs> that that's, that's kind of the thing. And so I think that the biggest challenge is kind of having the pioneers that will dare to take the lead uh, and assume the risks. And, and I think there is a role of government to actually motivate them to do so, like with incentives and so on. How interesting. Yeah, I'm, I'm quite inspired by how you see public code as really also like belonging to the public. So in that question of like who goes first, it is really about like, are we building something together or are we all building our own thing just for ourselves? And I, I think that's a, a crucial sort of like difficulty of the digital transformation that we're in, definitely, because there are not enough programmers in the world to even probably assign one to every every public administration in France, let alone those that understand digital transformation and can also understand the public sector. So I, I think that like you have a very strong battle cry there. <laughs> but in that, like I'm quite interested in like how like public administrations usually don't develop software for reasons that you talked about already. But how did Open Fisca end up being developed by a public administration? Well, as uh, as most beautiful things in life, it was at the same time by accident and in purpose. By accident, I mean, Open Fisc was actually started uh, by uh, two economists. And at some point, how could I say? So it was just started in the, in the civil society. And at some point, it got the interest of Dinum because it could be helpful for simulating some fiscal reforms. So it was kind of they they actually kind of started sponsoring and developing open fisca within government and different use cases started to emerge so it, it kind of became a little bit uh, naturally actually continuing uh, sponsoring the project so but that's kind of a, an, a circumstantial thing what is important for me is um there is an underlying explicit 
vision and politics there. And so what happened is that at the time, it was 20, 2014, the started implementing a very specific policy led by the government director, Henri Barbier, which was called L'État Plateforme. L'État Plateforme is a way of saying government as a platform. Uh, and government as a platform uh, really means that we here in government, we don't have all the answers. We here in government, we don't have all the resources that it takes to actually deploy on our, our mission to serve the general interest. And there are other, other big companies, big platforms, hackers, academ ac academics, associations, and small startups that are actually doing stuff and are trying to work with very few elements to contribute to the general interest. So what government as a platform means is that instead of trying to prohibit and regulate to prohibit this different, this whole uh, big ecosystem to actually do what they're doing, the role of government should be on the contrary to facilitate this work. And so how do you actually facilitate this work? So you develop and you deploy a shared common digital infrastructure. So that means you open your data, you open your codes, you deploy APIs. And in the case of Mifisca, you make available legislation code, which is basically an API of, uh, of like, how do you actually interpret all the rules that uh, govern your society? So for lasting changes to, to happen, you have to have a vision and, and an explicit policy of wanting to transform radically the functioning of government through the intelligence of citizens, through the intelligence of the civil servants, the street civil servants, through the intelligence of startups, of, 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 of everybody, not just government. You talked when uh, Boris asked you right now how the open fisca ended up being developed by a public entity or a public body in this case. You mentioned something like beautiful casualty or something like that. So as a follow-up of that, I would like to ask you how did you, Mauko Quiroga, ended up involved in the project? Um, well, there's two versions of that story as well. Um... <laughs> <laughs> is, is it a censored and an uncensored one? Yeah, now there's, there's, there's a romantic version of it and then the more, the, the more factual one. So. so the romantic version of the story is that, um, uh, well, but you, you already mentioned that I have this background on engineering law, political science, uh, and yeah. acute interest in government as a platform and public policy and, and whatnot, right? So in a way, Open Fisco was just waiting for me to answer my calling, but that was not Beautiful. how it happened, really. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, no, it's just nothing glorious. It was just like passing by, you know, by coffee one day. So I just wanna, I was going to pair like my 11th coffee and then the team just called me to a room and proposed me to become their product manager. And that's it. So you can kind of stick to both or either or, I don't know. I mean, both are, <laughs> bo both are interesting. <laughs> 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 Cool. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I, now that I was also thinking about the public sector in France, that uh, I don't know, you, you mentioned the 11 o'clock coffee, and I don't know, I, I sort of uh, pictured a lot of French civil servants. So, yeah, uh, getting a little bit more serious, perhaps, I would like to ask you, how, how do you see the adoption of, of public code in, in France? The adoption of public code in France? Well, um, I, I think that I'm partially already uh, answered this question, but um, how could I say it's good, but there is still work to be done. So just to, just to a little bit recapitulate. So we have this very innovative framework right, with this unique yet in Europe uh, in terms of public code. I mean, public code exists like legally and even algorithms are, are recognized in law. So uh, mm -hmm. code that actually decides things that have impact on people. So, they're regulated, they have to be transparent and they have to be published and they have to be accountable and they have to be appealable. So this exists, at least the legal framework exists, but for the reasons uh, that I mentioned earlier, there is a lot of work to be done in order to actually be 
up to standards. So I just wanted to add, like, just don't repeat myself. The prime minister asked a deputy last year to do a report, prepare a report. This guy is Eric Botorel. So uh, on the state of uh, open data and uh, open source in, in France. And so they, he submitted his report in end of December. And he's leading for a more uh, strategic and a more, let's say, not aggressive, but more decisive policy of opening opening data and opening source codes. So this is like a very big thing. And what I was wondering is like, it's also a lot of work. Do you feel that it's getting faster or is it like an uphill battle? Um, Tough question. No, yeah, it's a tough question, but it comes super timely. So do remember we were talking about being timely in politics. Uh, so I'm just a small story here. So this report came uh, back in uh, December 2020, right? So, okay, yes, another report. Let's uh, open more data, open more code. So what happens here is that this year, there is this guy from the civil society that actually reuse some codes and reuse some data and has to scrape some data that was not open yet uh, in order to build uh, the COVID tracker, which is kind of uh, the most important application for COVID tracking in France, which was basically done by the civil society, like a developer uh, working by himself at first, reusing stuff from that was that were published from, from government, and then, of course, having a lot of uh, contributors. And so what this became viral when this guy was offered some data via Telegram by the, the health minister, and he refused publicly saying, like, this has to be open data. It makes no sense. I mean, this lack of transparency, it's, 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 it's not normal. This is has supposed to be open. So what happens there is that, of course, Everybody in government now recognizes the importance of opening data, the importance of opening codes. And so now, out of a sudden, there are millions of money invested uh, in terms of uh, how do we actually do economic recovery from COVID, which a lot goes into opening data and real data and opening code based of code. And there is this new momentum that we'll see if it's going to produce the results that we expect. All the political discourse now is directed forward that we need to open data and open open code. Marco, I'm a bit uh, curious. What are the maybe the countries that you consider are doing a great job in the in this adoption of public code, right? So maybe the countries you're sort of looking up to, at least in this specific area of public code. Yeah, uh, I wanted to ask you that question. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, beyond the legal framework that we, that we talk about, I think that France is not that bad. Um, no, but, but like more like in the complete uh, open government thing, including public codes. I, I don't have like data on that. I just have some countries that I'm looking at. So Estonia is the first one that I can think about. But there are as well, like uh, Singapore, most recently Australia, because they started like really working on these rules of code thing. So they want to implement this uh, idea of grinding all the, the tax code before it, it, it's enacted. So it's kind of a, this mix of between open fisc and public code that like sponsored by, by, the minister, by the Minister of Economy, which is kind of quite good. But it's not sure it's going to be open or closed. So that's, kind of, I'm, I'm just kind of waiting to see. And then, I don't know, in South America, maybe this Uruguay are doing stuff, uh, good stuff. Uh, in Africa, maybe Nigeria. Yeah, that's kind of, I don't know if you guys have more. So it sounds like for a future episode, you would like to, uh, <laughs> like to interview us. <laughs> Who knows? Exactly. Maybe it's an interesting concept. Yeah. <laughs> We're coming uh, near the end of our time and uh, sort of as a segue to our next ep episodes that are coming up. Who would you recommend that we invite to, to come on our, on our show? So, yeah, so we would talk about like public code and, and algorithms and, and how to actually kind of make them contribute, right? So 
if you don't, so I'm, I'm going to say in France here, it's not like chauvinism, it's just like uh, what we can think about. So I would say, if I can propose Bastian Gary, I may, maybe you already know. So he basically yeah. works at Zilum as well. And then he's, I mean, he, he can share his experience, like concretely helping and guiding administrations through the opening of their code bases and, and to, to helping them to to get up to, to standards. So he's doing that job. And so it would, would, would be very interesting to have his view and experience on that. I would say also, well, I already mentioned uh, Matt Schneider and, uh, and Sandra Chagrun, which are both uh, working for OpenFISCA. But I think that uh, they have a lot of already interesting experience that they could share in terms of building and maintaining a contributive code bases with and within government, which is something we didn't talk a lot about that you mentioned a lot in your standard, which is like a whole new a whole new chapter, right? And maybe the third third proposition I would do is uh, two persons that work for Etalab, who are uh, Simon Chignard, Swazik Penico, and they what they did is they are the leading experts in public algorithms and, and how you actually make them transparent, accountable, and all the legal framework and the practical cases that, that are around people. I, I used to kind of compare public algorithms with public code. And, and so you talk about democratic accountability and so in algorithms you talk about algorithmic accountability. And I think it could be really interesting to contrast the two. Uh, these two parallel views, maybe. So those are those would be my three propositions. They are great. Great ones. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, uh, thank you, Mauko. Thank you for your time. It's been uh, great talking to you today. And also thank you, Boris, uh, for joining me today. Well, and thank you, Alva. Uh, it, was, uh, <laughs> it was all my honor. It's This is well. one of my favorite podcasts, and I'm very happy to be here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and if you would like to join us live next time so that you can also like join the chat and ask us questions uh, in the meantime, subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can also watch uh, all of our back uh, episodes and, uh, and see our faces talking. And uh, yeah, we will be back in about a month more or less. We already have someone that uh, agreed on um, coming here. We're very happy about it and uh, we'll be back soon. And uh, yeah, once again, thanks a lot, Mauko, for, for sharing this space, this time with us. It was very insightful. If you uh, are interested in the things that we do with, uh, with the Foundation for Public Code, then uh, you can reach out to us. Uh, you can find our website at publiccode.net. And we also have community calls. Every, uh, every month we have a community call about the Foundation for Public Code. And every month we have a community call for the Standard for Public Code that we'd love to chat with you uh, in. So uh, with that, I want to thank you again, and uh, I look forward to the next podcast. Bye. Thank you. <laughs>